one has. God, we pray for your provisions for Mosaic, for the small groups of this church, that you continue to fill uh, spots that are needed, that you would raise up other shepherds, that you would um, put it on people's hearts. God, because we recognize that in community, we can really grow and thrive in our walk with you. God, I pray for your blessing upon the Good News Bibles uh, Church School of Contemporary Arts that begins this week, God. God, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would teach us for those who have signed up, that uh, you could build qualities and skills in us that could be used that can be used for your glory, God. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your mercy to us, God. And God, thank you that uh, we're not dependent on technology, Lord. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Over 2,000 years, or 2,000 years in existence, unscathed, Lord, we open it up humbly right now, praying that you would speak to us, begging that you would speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. My mic disappeared. That's amazing. Well, uh, DC Talk had a song called What If I Stumble that they opened up with a sound clip from a man by the name of Brennan Manning. And this is what he says in that sound clip. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. End quote. Christians who acknowledge Jesus Christ with their lips but deny him by their lifestyles. That's a packed statement based on the assumption that those who do not bear fruit are Christians. But in any case, his point is strong. That if we profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our forgiver of sin, as our Master, our lifestyles truly ought to reflect that. And that when we do not have our lifestyle reflect that, we shame the name of Christ among unbelievers. Several weeks ago, I preached a sermon that I titled Sacred in Sin City. Today is basically a follow-up to that message. At that time, I opened up Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and we looked at what God would teach us on how to live sacred lives, holy lives, in a culture that is anti-Christ. And I focused on this part of the passage for most of it that says that the grace of God has appeared to all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I believe that God led me to zero in application on three matters. That of modesty, that of music, 
and that of movies. I know that God in His mercy uh, challenged many, if not most of us, here that day. Calls us to reflect upon our standards. And if they reflect the gospel we profess, or they reflect the world that we live in. And as many of us were convicted, I pray that the conviction lasted longer than his worship service. I pray that you went home and began to rethink your standards and consider how your life reflects the gospel. And today I want to pick up on that same vein of thought, not from Titus, but from Philippians. You see, the Bible talks often about our relationship with the world. And it uses very strong language to speak of it. John 3.16 says that we ought to love the world because God so loves the world. But that is a clear reference to those who inhabit this planet. Not the systems, not the way of thought, not the standards of living this culture has. James 4.4, on the other hand, says that fellowship with the world is enmity toward God. If you love the world, your life reflects hatred and tension and strife with God. The book of 1 John 22 times speaks of our relationship to the world. And in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things of this world. It says that those who love the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in Him. Because the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, are not of the Father, but of the world. And it says that the world and its lusts are passing away, but the man and the woman who obeys the Lord will remain forever. But that says, do not love the world. And in today's text, from Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippians of this need to separate themselves from ungodliness and to strive on and press on towards spiritual maturity. How to live holy, sanctified, sacred lives in a culture that is anti-Christ. I want to begin reading again from chapter 3, verse 2. And I'm going to read uh, to our passage in verse 17 and kind of explain the context by which our passage is found in. It says this, Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is telling the Philippians to be careful of those who come in to distort the gospel. Verse 3 says, For we are the real circumcision. People were coming into the church of Philippi saying, You need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul says, No, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul then says, You know, I've got some, some qualifications that are pretty admirable in the eyes of this world. I'm an Israelite. I'm born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. But he says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. That's his yearning. He says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This time it says, That I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what Paul wanted in life. He wanted to know Christ above all things. And everything that he had to his credit, he considered as rubbish. Verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this, referring to resurrection from the dead or a certain amount of spiritual maturity. He says, I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Verse 13, this is the strong point of this passage. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's goal in life was to attain a certain amount of maturity, a spiritual maturity that comes only through a life of holiness, through sanctification. And this is what he strove for. He said, I'm going to forget what's behind. I'm going to leave my past there, my failures, my history, and I'm going to press on to what God has called me to do and to be in Christ Jesus. And when he reaches heaven, that goal, that prize is there awaiting him. Paul's desire is that he and by telling of his own example, one of the churches of the Philippians, to be resilient in their pursuit of holiness and to press on towards spiritual maturity. That was his desire for them. And that is what our passage has as a desire for you. Brothers and sisters of Good News Bible Church, and those of you who are visiting today, would you be resilient in your pursuit of holiness? And would you press on towards spiritual maturity? It all begins with knowing Christ, as Paul said. And the reality is I know that there's some of you here today who perhaps do not know Jesus Christ personally. And that's where it all begins. There can be no life of uprightness or purity or a certain spiritual maturity. There could be none of that apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And later on at the end of this sermon, I want to give an opportunity for those of you who do not know Jesus to make a decision to trust Him. And also have a decision for those of us here who do know Christ, but who are loving the world, to make a decision and say, I'm done with that. I'm pressing on in Christ. So my prayer has been as I prepare this message that God would prepare your heart as this sermon progresses for these 
matters. So in our text for today, chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, 1, Paul lays out three ways by which we can press on and walk in holiness. The first example he says is that we need to imitate those who are godly in the faith. The second thing he says is that we need to anticipate the imminent or the soon return of Jesus Christ. And the third thing is that we have to be unwavering in our resolve for holiness. And as we pursue these things through our faith in Christ, by His power, we can walk a life that honors the Lord. So look at verses 17 and 18 with me as I begin reading the Word of God. This is what Paul says. Brothers, referring to brothers and sisters, the word is uh, inclusive of all in Greek. And it says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example we have in us. And I'll stop there. Paul says, join in imitating me. That's a a frightening statement. (laughs) To tell somebody, follow me. Follow the example that I set before you. But the unique thing is, this is not the first time Paul says this. He says this at least three other times, probably four in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Imitate me as I do Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says, Be imitators of us and the Lord. See, Paul has this understanding of himself. Recognizing that he's a fallen human being, he's a sinner, but he also knows that in his life, he's following the example of Jesus Christ, seeking uh, holiness. And when he tells the Philippians, join in imitating me, he has this recognition that I'm going to follow hard after Jesus. But he expands this and says in the second half of verse 17, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So basically, I recognize that some of you perhaps have never met me. But you know people who know me and know the way that I walk and those who come with me walk. And I want you to follow their examples. And I think this is, well, this is clearly where we are at. None of us have met Paul. But we know the manner by which he walked. We know the manner by which he taught people to walk. And in the passage I just read, he says that he counts all of his personal gain as loss. Can we imitate that? He says that he yearns to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Can we imitate that? He says that he forgets what is behind and strives for what is ahead. That he presses on toward the heavenly goal. That we as a body of believers, uh, those who know Jesus Christ, would press on and following this example and the example of those who walk in this manner. As I consider this, I see here some strong allusions to discipleship. You know, how, how do we grow as a child of God? Well, Paul says to imitate those who are godly. We ought to walk alongside of those who are mature in the faith, more mature than we are, 
and to hold on to their example and to look after them and say, I want to be like that as that person follows Christ. And I also recognize that many of us, of us in this room have never been discipled by somebody. You perhaps have never really walked with somebody for a season in your life who showed you how to follow the Lord. I was at a conference on Thursday and Friday uh, with eight others from the church. Um, uh, Erica came, my brother and Ruth, uh, Ryan and Brianna, um, Edgar, Gabriel, Benny Ortiz, I think that's all of us, right? We had a conference at Moody called Legacy Disciple Making Conference. And one thing that this conference kept drilling to us was the fact that discipleship needs to take place in community. You know, as Paul says, follow my example, that's an individual, but it says also follow the examples of others who walk in this manner. That includes community. And while it's important for us to be discipled by one individual, there's a need for us to be a part of a community of believers who push us forward in our faith, who teach us of the doctrines of God, who teach us what it means to honor the Lord with our heart, mind, and soul. It's a call to discipleship. And I want us to even think, even at this very moment, of two people in your life who are more mature than you in your faith, that you could follow their example. Think of two people. Two people. And then think of this reality that some people may have just thought of you. Can you say, imitate me as I do Christ? Or is the love of the world tampering with your ability to make that statement? They spoke of seven marks of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I really appreciated them and I want to share them with you because I see almost all of them in this immediate passage in the example of Paul. And this is something that we ought to strive to be in order that we can replicate ourselves into somebody else's life. And first of all, it says this, a quality of a disciple is someone who supremely love, has a supreme love for Jesus. Is Jesus Christ the love of your life? Do you love Him? Can you right now close your eyes and say, Jesus, I love you so much. It's a mark of a disciple. Is there a regular study, secondly, and devotion to God's word and to prayer? Do you commune with God in His word and in prayer on your knees? Thirdly, have you renounced yourself? Have you renounced yourself as the authority of your life? Paul says, I count all of these things rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Have you done that? A fourth mark is a life of submission to the cross. Does the cross direct your step? And where the cross says to do such and such that you submit under that authority. Is there an allegiance to Christ's compelling leadership? 
Is there a recognition of the true ownership of your possessions? You can't tell someone how to how to manage their lives, their finances, if, if your possessions are your own and not the Lord's. Lastly, a mark of a disciple is there's a reflection on Christ's love, of, of Christ's love in our attitudes and actions toward others. Do we extend grace to people when they offend us? How can we teach a brother or a sister to walk in grace? Can we say, imitate me as I do Christ? Paul leaves an example for us here that's high. But let me remind you that Paul was a man. He was a human being. And Paul said, follow me. Join in imitating my example. And here Paul opens up things a little broader and says, you know what? Essentially, there is an example, however, that you don't want to follow. And that's found in verse 18. He says this, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You don't want to follow that person. Look at it. He says, For many people walk as enemies of Christ. Many. And it's clear that these people have some association with the church. Many people walk as enemies of Christ. How I wish we could not and desire that we would not have to say that even in our own midst. But the reality is that there are those who are in our extended families who profess to know Christ but deny Him by their lifestyles who walk as an enemy of the cross. And Paul says that he often reminds them of these things. And now as he writes it, he reminds them with tears. Why would Paul feel the need to remind them of a bad example? Well, one, that they would be drawn to pray for these individuals. Paul is in tears. He is crying when he writes this. He says that. He's not lying. He's crying. Notice the affection in these verses. Verse 17, he calls them his brothers. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, and the last part of the verse says, My beloved. These are real people. These are real lives. These are souls on the fence of heaven and hell. And Paul said that there are so many who are enemies of the cross. And he's reminding them so that they might be drawn to pray for these individuals who love the world. But secondly, he tells them to warn them of this danger. There is a danger, my brothers and sisters, to be drawn in and sucked in to a way of thinking that is anti-Christ, that is an enemy of the cross. Just think, at the cross, God's wrath was satisfied in His Son, Jesus Christ. And an enemy of the cross does not accept that. At the cross, Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. And the enemy of the cross does not accept that. 
at the cross, God and man were reconciled. There is a peace now. The enemy of the cross does not accept that. And Paul says, this is a reality of life in the world. He gives us three characteristics of these individuals. In verse 19, he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. I want to open this up for just a moment. Their end is destruction. Their conclusion, their telos, their, the, the ultimate result of their life is destruction. This is the fruit of loving the world. Jesus in John chapter 17 verse 12 was praying to the Father and said, I have, not, I have lost not one of those you've given to me except for the son of perdition, which is the same exact word here, the son of destruction, referring to Judas. Those who want to dabble with the world find themselves in a category with Judas Iscariot who is called the son of destruction. How did Judas experience destruction? I think he experienced it spiritually. He betrayed the Messiah. His, his relationship with God was severed. Any hope for knowing the Lord was severed. Judas was spiritually destroyed. Emotionally, he began to be destroyed. Remember the despair that overcame him? This emotional destruction of guilt that ultimately led to his physical destruction by taking his own life, which led to his eternal destruction. Peter says in Acts chapter 1, as he prays for replacement for Judas, that he turned aside to go to his own place. And if that is not a reference to his eternal destination, I don't know what it is. This is not to say that Judas knew Christ, lost his salvation, and is now apart from God. Peter is just saying that he turned aside and went to this place, which has every implication that Judas never truly knew the Lord. But he experienced an emotional destruction a spiritual destruction, a physical destruction, and ultimately an eternal one. And here Paul says, those who love the world, their end is destruction. Now we know that on this earth, God's grace is a reality. And there's no one too far from His love. But at that point of physical death, there's no turning back. And this warning against destruction is great. He says also that their God is their belly. He's not saying that they got a bad eating habit. Belly should be best understood as their appetite or their cravings. Their God is their cravings, what they yearn for, what drives their life, their decisions. Just think about alcohol as an illustration. If your craving is for liquor or for beer or for alcohol, enough of it will consume you 
It will take control of you. It will drive you. You will submit to it. It will not submit to you. And there are so many cravings in our life that are just as destructive. Addictions in our lives. Subtle matters of pride and arrogance. Materialism. So many of us, our God is our belly in the form of money. That it prevents us from truly enjoying our family because we're stuck at work. It prevents us from giving to the Lord's work because we're trying to pay off our debt. From blessing others because we're too consumed with hoarding it for ourselves. Their God is their belly and that is a characteristic of one who loves the world. Thirdly, he says that their glory is in their shame. They don't simply do things that dishonor God, but then they glory in it. They don't just cheat on their taxes, but they go tell their friends how they did it. They don't just lust after a woman or view porn or go to a strip club, but they invite their friends to join them. They don't just lie to a friend, but they rejoice in the fact that they were caught. They don't steal, but they frivolously spend their money, put their clothes in their closet, step back, admire it, and find their worth there. Their glory is ultimately their shame. Search your heart, my brother and sister. Let God show you ways in which you have let the, your boasts in this world be anything other than Jesus Christ. Because whatever that boast is, it is to your shame. And Paul says these individuals have become jaded in their worldview, in their thinking, in their morality, in their goals, in their cravings. And this is a stark warning to press on the spiritual maturity that puts that stuff behind us because he founds it in verse 20 which is what we need to anticipate it is the fact that Jesus Christ will return he says in verse 20 our citizenship is in heaven and from heaven we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's call to us to be resilient in our pursuit of holiness and to press on towards spiritual maturity involves the fact that we imitate the examples of godliness and not those of the world because those ultimately lead to destruction. And it's also that we not only imitate the godly but we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, when the return of Jesus is mentioned, it is always linked with the exhortation for living in the here and now. Our hope for Christ's return isn't founded simply in some hope in the distance, but there are realities today. And I wish we had time, but we don't have time to go through those passages. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says that the, the, the clouds will part, the world will descend. And then he says, Encourage one another with these words. First John chapter 2, he says that Christ is coming and that some at his return will shrink away from him in shame. 
But that if we abide in Him, we can be confident. That has implications now. In chapter 3 of 1 John, he says that the hope of Christ purifies us just as Christ is pure. And ultimately, that will come to fruition at His return. Throughout the New Testament, this hope of Jesus coming keeps us pure. Now just think about it. If you were to step out of this church today, look into the skies, see the clouds part, see the Lord come, you hear that trumpet sound. That would make a difference right now to you, would that not? Or if that happened next Saturday, how would you spend that week? It has a purifying function. The hope of Christ's return. Time goes by quick. Pastor Wayne is right. Lastly, Paul tells them to be unwavering in their pursuit. Look at these beautiful words in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, Good News Bible Church. Someone gave me this um, magazine several weeks ago. You guys might have seen this before, Cafe. You guys seen this magazine? Well, the, the title says, Latinas Find Islam. And I read the articles in here, and they speak of this move among Hispanics toward Islam. And they shared a story of one woman who lived her life going to the clubs every weekend, living in immorality, who found a moral system in Islam that she wanted to give her life to. Now, this article does not make these connections, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, I see them clear. When the church's holiness is not appealing to the world. Something's wrong. Something is gravely wrong. This woman is motivated now to serve Allah, which is an idol. And she is motivated because Islam is motivated by a certain amount of fear for Allah. How much more are we saved believers in Jesus Christ ought to be motivated by love. We're citizens of heaven, those of us who know Christ. I pray that we would pursue holiness in sin city. That we begin to walk us alongside of those who we can imitate in Christ. That we can anticipate Christ's return with the newness. And that we would remain unwavering in our pursuit. I'm going to skip a closing song that we were hoping to do that we are going to reflect on. I'm going to ask um, Pastor Ralph to come up in just a moment to lead us in the Lord's Supper. This is a time for us to meditate upon these things. If you don't know Jesus Christ today and you want to know Him, I pray even as Pastor Ralph is speaking that you would come to the side, to my left or to my right, and I want to ask those who are prayer counselors or those who are mature in the faith that you would come along somebody to pray with them 
if they today would want to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if today it is your desire to put aside your tampering with the world and to be resilient in your pursuit of holiness, would you come alongside as well? And if you know this individual who comes, would you walk with them and pray with them? And as Pastor Al speaks, feel free to do that. Feel free to do that, please. Because we're walking together in this, are we not? Let me pray. Father, we move forward by your mercy. God, we want to be men and women of Jesus Christ who forget what's behind and strive for what's ahead, pressing on toward the goal of holiness, maturity, and ultimate uh, consummation of, of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, we commit this to you in his name. Amen.